You're listening to a podcast by The Ferret. You can help us do more podcasting and more investigating by signing up to The Ferret for just £5 per month, less than the cost of an Edinburgh pint. Go to theferret.scot forward slash subscribe. Hi everyone and welcome back to a all new series of For Fact's Sake, the Ferrets podcast about misinformation and fact checking. I'm your host, Ali Bryan, and alongside me, returning for season two, Paul Dobson. How are you, Paul? Very well, Ali, yes. I'm not sure whether it's a bit too late to say Happy New Year to our listeners now. Uh, We are recording this Mm. on the second last day of February, so feels a bit late. But yeah, I'm doing well. How are you getting on? Very, very good. Yeah. Um, the reason we've been away for slightly longer than we had anticipated is because we are doing a bit of a refresh of the podcast. Um, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently this year. Um, instead of doing our podcast every two weeks, we're going to be doing slightly more deep divey style interview podcasts uh, in series mini series format um paul do you want to describe a little bit about what we might have coming up yeah so we're starting off with uh, a series on democracy it's a big year for democracy i think over two billion people's voting worldwide and mm-hmm. um, so we're going to dive into you know what could be driving disinformation in elections this year but also what the main disinformation topics are going to be and how people are responding to them what else are we changing about the pod, Ali? So there'll be no more reading of our fact checks from the week before. Instead, we're going to have a series of new features, um, exciting new, very well-developed features that will um, accompany our main interviews every episode. Um, and this week, we are going to be starting off with uh, one of the long-running features we're going to be doing, which is going to be the conspiracy dictionary so every episode we'll be looking at a different letter of the alphabet and looking at a conspiracy that is attached to it something you may have heard of in discourse around various things these things tend to kind of prick the mainstream quite often these days um and uh this week's one is the world economic forum but before we get into that we are going to be speaking to our esteemed guest for this week's episode As Paul mentioned at the top of the intro, we'll be discussing various factors of misinformation and democracy and how the elections this year could be impacted by these things. And one of the key factors in this year's election is the emergence of generative AI. So Paul, do you want to chat a little bit about how we're going to discuss that and about our excellent guest? Yeah, so we're speaking to Polly Curtis from the think tank Demos. They've just produced a big report about generative AI and the impact it's had already on elections and that it's likely to have this year. Um, It's a fascinating discussion, so shall we get into it? Let's do it. (laughs) 
My name is Polly Curtis. I'm the Chief Executive at the cross-party think tank Demos and um, previously in my career I've been a journalist so I care about really great information journalism and how it intersects with democracy and um, the country's well-being. Excellent. Well democracy being the watchword and keyword this year we're heading into a uh, has been media trialed like the election year across the world. Uh, billions of people apparently voting across the world in various national elections. But we're focusing today's podcast about the impact and potential impact of new technologies and how these sort of things might drive disinformation and misinformation in the election. First of all, how important do you think these sort of technological drivers will be in creating misinformation? Um. I think very important, but I think what's hard to judge is how much more important this year than previous years compared with future years. Where are we in the kind of evolution of these things? Because what we know is that the last 10 years, um, democracy has been profoundly impacted by the change in how all our communication systems work, by the pace of the media, by the digitization, by the um, change in the power dynamics in information really so you know 20 years ago when I was starting out as a journalist at the Guardian a newspaper published something and it was kind of announcing something to the world and it was a fact and um, there were no feedback mechanisms now every fact that goes into the world is dissected and distributed and bashed around and it's it's very complex the media system at the moment so for any politician that wants to communicate their messages kind of truthfully and, and um, directly, it's actually quite hard to do now because there's so much disruption and different kind of information flows in the system. Um, but also there is a hell of a lot of space for disinformation and misinformation to both be produced and consumed and distributed. So the reason we're talking to you today is because Demos has just produced a report on the potential impacts of artificial intelligence on um, the elections coming up this year, as we've mentioned. So can you just outline what the potential impacts of AI are and whether we've seen it impacting democracy already around the world? What's different this year is generative AI and the accessibility of generative AI tools that mean it means anyone can produce content um, that's not real or based in fact at a scale never known before. Um, and so we talked to lots of people who work in communications about how they're adopting these technologies. And it's hugely variable at the moment. So some people are using uh, generative AI to produce social media posts, to help them research. We talked to um, uh, parliamentarians who are using generative AI to help them do their briefings for their speeches in Parliament. Mm. You know, there's there's a lot of space that's being used already, but it's not actually changing the outcome hugely significantly at the moment. Um, a lot of the kind of fake images that I'm sure we'll come on to talk about, um, we could have produced with Photoshop before. It's just got easier and it's peop in people's hands. One of the big differences um, is the accessibility of producing fake audio and video and that's much harder for people to um, assess the um, provenance of really we're standing on a precipice okay. um, mm -hmm. and what it's done is shone a light on misinformation and disinformation again for good or bad one of the things we did last year was um, 
fact checking or attempting to fact check the audio of Keir Starmer at mm. the party conference, which mm. um, if you haven't heard, it was a bit of audio where he was uh, supposedly first berating one of his staffers and then criticizing the city of Liverpool, which was a bit of fake audio that had been created through, through an AI program and then posted on social media by an anonymous account. We are seeing examples of potential threats to democracy already being created through generative AI. Do you think the political system or democracy as it stands in the UK is prepared for these sort of threats? I think awareness is growing. And just based on that example, there was some research recently which found a whole load of deep fake videos of Rishi Sunak promoting cryptocurrency. You know, yeah. Those kind of examples mean that there is a lot of awareness um, within the system that this has potential um, in this election cycle. But actually, the action is relatively slow and it's really difficult um, to take kind of proactive kind of measures on this. So, you know, what are the tools you could reach for to try and kind of safeguard democracy um, from some of this misinformation, disinformation? You can look to legislation. Actually, legislation is too slow to do anything ahead of um, an election. And I promise you, if we tried to rush through legislation now while the technology Mm. is so in flux, it wouldn't be good legislation that would last very long. There's some existing powers. So under the Online Safety Act, that gave Ofcom some powers to look at disinformation and misinformation. And they've got a committee that's looking at that at the moment. That needs to kind of come out with some some um, positions on this. Then there's the technology companies themselves, and they are hyper aware of this. Um, they've got all these new uh, generative AI tools out there. And if, if they screw up global democracy, they're going to have a bit of a problem on their hands. All the technology companies are looking at watermarking, kite marking, different ways to label content. But none of that technology is there yet. None of it is good enough. In, in the work we did, we came up with one suggestion, which was really for political parties to show some leadership in this. We know political parties are excited about some of these tools. It makes their communications like much easier. And there are benefits in that as yeah. well. But we, we think that there's scope for some kind of cross-party agreement where they could come together and just agree the rules and the terms and the guidance of how they're going to do this, just so that they're modelling... Uh, best practice but also kind of starting to set the norms what's okay to use generative AI for what's not I think that's a really interesting point I think that kind of setting almost like the ground rules and the terms of how the elections will be fought with regard to generative AI but one of the problems as you've alluded to is that the majority of this stuff is happening outside the political mainstream yeah so it's coming from bad actors but it's impacting the political mainstream Mm. so where are we on that threat that seems very difficult to get a grip of it's really, really difficult. I totally agree. You're so right. The, um, you know, because a lot of this is coming from bad actors um, from, you know, uh, other countries with inf- interests in um, uh, messing with um, other democracies, um, from people who are using Rishi Sunak's videos to promote scams online, those, those, yeah. those kind of things. And um, that, you know, the political kind of um, act in this as a tiny tiny element so we've made that that suggestion but we don't think that kind of solves the problem long term there will have to be legislation uh, new legislation the technological solutions coming on stream there's a kind of societal response as well and about how we educate ourselves to respond to misinformation and disinformation yeah 
there isn't one solution to this. It's going to take all of these elements um, to to take responsibility. And 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 just you know, we we've, we've looked at political leadership because that's something that can happen now, um, and and would mark democracy out as different from all the bad things that are happening mm, on yeah. the internet um, and model a different kind of behaviour. You mentioned that we're sort of standing on a precipice in terms of uh, generative AI and democracy. Do you get a sense of how prepared politicians are to deal with the threat? Because I think in previous election years, you kind of felt like a lot of mainstream politicians were caught on the hop a little bit and didn't really mm-hmm. know how to respond. So I wonder, do you feel like there's there's more awareness of the threat this year? That kind of idea of standing on a precipice is quite interesting because I think what we're seeing at the moment is, and what we'll see over the course of this year, is an amplification of the misinformation and disinformation we've seen previously. It's just easier mm-hmm. to produce. Yeah. But actually, the the really profound difference that generative AI could make probably won't happen this year but is much bigger it it is potentially as disruptive as the internet or social media or iPhones like those things that actually changed the way information flows and how we behave Um, so so the, the the change we'll see this year is just more of what we've seen previously and actually it's quite helpful because there's more attention on it now to actually create some momentum for change there is a potential downside to the awareness as Mm. well and you know this idea of the liar's dividend where just the uh, existence of fake information out there not only makes people question the truth of everything they're watching and kind of disengage and lose interest because they just don't trust anything but also that bad political actors will play on that and and use, um, you know, the whole Donald Trump fake news accusation was was a kind of disruption of our whole kind of system of beliefs around information. And that that I think is the biggest threat we face this year is just that people switch off because they see one deep fake or hear about one deep fake and think they can't trust anything anymore. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. That's something that we certainly have battled with as we've <laughs> been an organization. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's an interesting part of the conversation, which I find really interesting about AI and sort of the media coverage of generative AI over the last couple of years is in some cases, it's sort of like externalized the threat of disinformation towards AI and bad actors outside of the political mainstream. Yeah. But part of the conversation around people's distrust is because of, major politicians lying and not correcting the records and political parties making claims that are being are provably false. So do you think there's a problem there in terms of we can create a best practice guide or a terms of engagement for politicians around using generative AI, but there doesn't seem to be, and there hasn't seemed to be any agreement about making sure they say things that are correct in the first place. The way social media works and the algorithms work, it does reduce arguments to binaries it just reduce everything it, it, it creates no space for nuance and so things become less and less true um you know politicians have always made political cases for things that might ignore certain facts might overemphasize other facts might stretch them but but it's where it's where the kind of line is between kind of political rhetoric and and actually kind of breaking into 
um, untruths. I think it's really important that both are held to account on, but also that in an age of misinformation, disinformation, they rise above and act differently and don't play that game. The conversation that was, we had around 2016 and before that was the impact on the election 2016 and then further of social media companies. It felt at that point that there was a sort of unaccountable level of power that these private companies were now having on the discourse around elections. Do you feel like that's the case even more so now that there's a few private companies that are effectively controlling the significant generative AI apps that are being used? So then the accountability is, is effectively governments asking them nicely to, because the legislation is not quite there, to, to make sure they're responsible. I think what's different this time compared with social media is that we, we've been through it before. So there's almost yeah. kind of a, a collective memory about, oh, this feels like that period back then when everything was changing. And, and that brings kind of, um, you know, a, a much more heightened awareness so people understand that this is a big change we're going through and that there needs to be action. Yeah. Um, but it also brings quite a lot of baggage. And this, this is a different technology, but I do think it has the potential. If you think pre and post um, social media, how that changed the power dynamics and in the information environment, um, we couldn't really have conceived of it beforehand. And I think we're in that space at the moment where, where we're talking about kind of chatbots. I think it's really, and, and, and how that one-to-one communication works. Someone very respected in this area in a, in a um, Chatham House comment, conversation, so I won't name him, um, said this thing about how um, how social media was wired for engagement. So it was about eyeballs and just kind of finding the quickest way like TikTok does to get as many eyeballs on something for advertising revenue as possible. Um, generative AI is wired for intimacy. It wants to know and understand and nurture and um, support you. And so this person's um, argument was that once you get chatbots kind of iterating relationships with individuals, that really disrupts how we relate to each other, how friendship works, how religion works, how po politics works. It changes how we nurture belief between us as communities. And that's where my brain kind of slightly pops and it all feels very futuristic. But I think it, that is as different as going back to pre and post social media age. So Ali, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to have some new features on For Fact's Sake this year. And the first of these is our For Fact's Sake Conspiracy Dictionary. So this is a new uh, segment where we look at some of the things that come up time and time again in conspiracy circles. You may have seen some of these mentioned online and been confused as to what exactly they are or how they link to conspiracy theories. Um, and we're going to explain them to you. And obviously, as is traditional for any dictionary, we are starting this week on W. Yeah, that's how it always works, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is, yeah. Uh, which is W for the World Economic Forum. That's a topic we've discussed many times on this pod with various guests, uh, but we've never really sort of explained exactly what it is. So, first of all, Ali, the World Economic Forum, or WEF, comes up regularly in conspiracy chat online. 
but what actually is it in layman's terms? So the World Economic Forum, it's an NGO uh, and it sort of brings together influential people like big business people, CEOs, investors, celebrities, economists, political leaders and journalists uh, to talk about the issues of the day and to in its own words, improve the state of the world by engaging these people uh, to shape, quote, global, regional and industry agendas. Um, it's been going since 1971. It was uh, started by an engineer called Klaus Schwab. It's probably best known in it kind of pricks, pricks like mainstream media consciousness when its annual meeting is on. That's in Davos. You hear, mm -hmm. you hear the term Davos quite a lot. Yeah. Um, where like thousands of these delegates get together for a meeting and networking events and like private business meetings and things like that. It's usually reported pretty widely on in the media and has high profile attendees that we've had like presidents, uh, prime ministers, big like leaders of uh, countries and leaders of industry tend to go to it every year. Where is Davos? Just for it's in the the Alps in Switzerland. So it's a bit like a James Bond retreat in some ways, is it not? Like a kind of yeah, well, it's a, certainly a lavish place um, and a lavish uh, event, highly financed and highly um, banqueted event. Okay, and as you've outlined there, the World Economic Forum does push like a strongly pro-business agenda. Mm -hmm. So there are kind of totally legitimate reasons to criticize it without descending into conspiracy theories so yeah have there been protests against the world economic forum before yeah so i mean over the years the wef has been criticized loads um in like the 90s and early 2000s it was a kind of target of anti-globalization activists including you know similarly with like the world bank and uh, the world trade organization um and they would disrupt meetings uh, they claimed that the organization helped to increase and perpetuate poverty obviously its members come from you know, huge business uh, interests that have been blamed for causing, you know, increasing inequality and causing climate change. And it's been described by people as kind of fostering a kind of supranational global elite that's sort of unbound mm -hmm. by national governments and basically sets like agendas for e e the economies of the world and serves these sort of elite interests. Yeah, it's interesting because that those kind of legitimate criticisms seem yeah. like a particularly fertile ground for conspiracy theories. Totally. What even the words you're using there, like globalization and things like that, um, which have legitimate cri cri critics. But yeah, so what exactly are the conspiracies around the World Economic Forum and yeah Davos as well? I guess. So yeah, the main conspiracy that's been popularized in recent years, which relates to the World Economic Forum, is the Great Reset. Um, that's probably something that should be on letter G of our uh, conspiracy dictionary. So maybe we may come back to that in the future. Mm -hmm. But um, you may have heard of the Great Reset, particularly after COVID. Um, it was uh, essentially it was a plan that was developed by the World Economic Forum, which looked at how the world could recover economically from the impact of the pandemic. Um, it was launched in 2020 publicly. Um, it, the intro video was partially launched by um, then Prince Charles. And it basically sets out a sort of restructure of the economy and calls for governments to aim for economic and climate sustainability and use tech solutions to improve society. Um, this is sort of a kind of aim that the World Economic Forum generally tends to say it, that it looks for. Um, people have criticized it, obviously, because it, you know, a lot of the people that are involved in the World Economic mm. Forum have, you could argue, helped perpetuate those things. Certainly climate change, there's a lot of private jets flying about and uh, people that are quite significant climate um uh emitters that are there um but 
when conspiracy, how conspiracy theorists recently sort of claimed on top of it was they claimed the Great Reset was actually a, a sort of attempt to strip people of freedoms. So post-COVID um, and particularly with vaccines and vaccine mandates, they sort of, the conversation started to develop around the idea that the Great Reset was a sort of overarching th idea that meant that you would lose your private property, you okay. wouldn't be able yeah. to do anything without getting a COVID vaccine, you wouldn't be able to um, protest, you wouldn't be able to, and all these things, broadly speaking, these things were um, blamed on both co the COVID vaccine, the COVID-19 pandemic and supposed like climate change legislation. Okay. So that's why, how it links to things like 50 Minute Cities and um, the anti-ULAS protest, which we've seen, which we can it's get onto. It's kind of an umbrella, isn't it? Like for quite a lot of Exactly, yeah. So it, it was described by Naomi Klein as a conspiracy, part of a conspiracy smoothie. So basically, it's, a, it's not really a clear as such conspiracy. It's a sort of umbrella where loads, of, as you say, loads of things fit into it. So there are loads of like spurious claims that can be linked to the Great Reset and can, in some people's eyes, be an example of the Great Reset, as it's known. Um, but broadly speaking, yeah, the idea is that conspiracy theories think it's, it's a way to kind of control population, reduce people's liberty, um, and yeah, it, as they say, enslave population of the world. The idea of kind of like a cabal of people at the top of world society organizing global affairs, a lot of people say that that's uh, an anti-Semitic trope. Yeah. And that when they're analyzing the conspiracies around the WF, there is a lot of anti-Semitism uh -huh. that is played upon. Can you just explain that a little bit, and uh, just briefly, because obviously it touches on a lot of other conspiracy theories. Yeah, that well, I'm that's sure part of the. Yeah, that's part of the problem. I think that one of the things when you talk about conspiracies, there's another conspiracy which follows mm. right behind yeah. after it. Yeah, I mean, the key claim about the World Economic Forum is that it's sort of a shadowy, hidden hand controlling the world yeah. and orchestrating events, and that is something that has been a key part of anti-Semitic conspiracies yeah. um, historically. So, obviously, in recent years since the great reset became popularized as a conspiracy theory it's become really popular in far right circles and that then obviously has been regularly linked to anti-semitic tropes so you'll see for example klaus schwab who was the founder of the world economic forum being falsely linked to the rothschild which is a famous um and very successful banking family that has been the kind of target of yeah. some really widely cited anti-Semitic like conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, over hundreds of yeah. years. Yeah. And also things like the New World Order is another from this, another conspiracy, which is mm -hmm. kind of like we'll probably come to that as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And ideas around global control um, and shadowy elites, as you say, and people, you know, businessmen meeting in um, shadowy back rooms and stuff. All of that, a lot of that has kind of significant roots in anti-Semitic tropes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, there's a certainly a strong element among some of the people who cite the great reset of anti-semitic conspiracy yeah i suppose the interesting thing with the world economic forum is though that it's a public body and it's not really hiding what it's doing so yeah i mean you I could always say find ironic slightly when like it's not that shadowy yeah well i mean that, that i mean that's the thing of the, the argument that could the conspiracy theories theorists would make is that like this is what they're saying but this is what they're meaning and yeah. all these kind of shadowy meanings behind mm. certain events and you know um particularly around the pandemic there's they'd seize on tiny little bits of information from the world economic forum and say oh this is them this proves that this is what they were planning to do here and this is what was happening here um but yeah the the world economic forum is not necessarily a good organization or a positive organization obviously we have no view on that but it the, the idea of it being a sort of shadowy cabal that planned the pandemic and is planning to strip people's freedoms and they are all working together in a cabal particularly around climate change there's no evidence for 
that's all we've got time for for this episode thanks so much to polly for coming on and exploring the slightly terrifying world of generative ai and its impact on elections this is the first of a three-part mini-series on democracy um paul do you want to chat a little bit about what we'll be talking about next time yeah so in part two we're going to be having a chat about some of the currents of disinformation and the threads of disinformation that will be running through this election year um so stay tuned for that and remember you can get us fact check at the ferret.scot if you've got any questions suggestions anything about the podcast or about our fact checking work in general and As always, it's worth us mentioning, please give us five stars on your chosen podcast platform provider. Um, It's really, really helpful for podcasts and getting more ears on it. You can also get us on the social medias. Paul, as our designated young person on the podcast, can you explain what's going on over there? You can get us on Twitter or X at Ferret Scott. We're also on Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook. And we'll also be uploading an extended version of our chat with Polly on our YouTube channel. So worth subscribing there uh, to check that out. We'll be doing that for all the pods this year. Excellent. So we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.